If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. We have a person in the back of the audience who stands up and says, but what if it's all a great big hoax and we make a better world for nothing? And I think that really captures the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe. This, these solutions to this problem are good for us in every way. It's a win-win in every possible way. Why can we feel confident and hopeful about our abilities to address climate change in this time of need? Even though this topic can often feel complex, overwhelming, and sometimes even controversial, what are the three basic things we need to know about the science of climate change that are just undeniable and simple realities? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To check out our limited 2019 Green Dreamer planners created to holistically support all that you do this year, just head to greendreamer.com. Your purchase will also support the planting of 50 trees and the continued production of Green Dreamer. So thank you so much if you get to find something that you love. More on this later along with a discount code just for you. But for now, on to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is an astronomer and educator who's taught at every level from preschool through graduate school. His experience in research and education includes serving two years as a visiting senior scientist at the NASA headquarters, and right now he's touring the United States through his global warming tour to help demystify climate change. I think a big part of why people may be reluctant to even talk about climate change is because it may feel like this larger-than-life, complex, overwhelming, and polarizing topic. And this is why I was really excited to learn from our guest today, because his work focuses on how we can speak more intelligently and simply about the science behind climate change, and also what solution has already been agreed on by people of all political backgrounds that we can learn more about and support to help drive large-scale change for sustainability. Green Dreamer starting off with what inspired his love for nature, here's Dr. Jeffrey Bennett. Well, I think my, my love for nature and care for the environment 
goes back to the same uh, place as my love for space and astronomy, which is growing up uh, when Apollo was going to the moon and seeing those amazing images of Earth from space that made it very obvious to everyone that we live on a small and fragile planet and it's critical that we take good care of it. Mm. And so were you initially an astronomer and then got involved in climate change and sustainability or what did this path look like for you? You know, surprisingly to many people, the two things actually go hand in hand. Uh, much of what we understand about climate change, global warming in particular, comes from study of the planet Venus and compar comparisons among the different planets in our solar system. Mm -hmm. And so as an astronomer, we teach about global warming in our introductory astronomy courses. And so going back to when I first began teaching, which was in 1982, I was covering global warming in that class at that time, uh, more than 30 years ago. I, that was actually going to be my next question is how does astronomy relate to sustainability and climate change? So, so the key lesson comes again from the planet Venus, which Venus is very much like Earth in almost every way, except for its surface temperature, which is extremely high, about 800 degrees Fahrenheit, hot enough to melt lead. And the reason for that is because it has so much carbon dioxide in its atmosphere, about 200,000 times as much as Earth does. And that gives it this incredibly strong greenhouse effect. That's basically absolute proof that greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide make planets warmer than they would be otherwise. And that's why when we're adding carbon dioxide to Earth's atmosphere through the burning of fossil fuels and other human activities, we know that that is going to cause global warming. There's no question about that. The only question is how fast it will happen and how severe the consequences will be. This is kind of something that accelerates itself, right? It's like a, what is it called? Like a positive feedback loop? It certainly can be. We know from the geological record from the history of ice ages and the interglacial per periods over the past uh, million years or so that it does tend to self-accelerate whether it's going in the upward or the downward direction. We're pushing it in that upward direction. Now, one of the big questions is given that we're already in a warm period for Earth in one of these interglacial periods between ice ages, how much more can it go as a result of what we're doing? And that's where some uncertainty comes in. That's where we use models to try to understand how much it will change. But there's certainly concern that it could self-accelerate much more than what we've been thinking it might do. What's at stake right now in terms of where we're headed that we have certainty of? Well, we have certainty that the Earth is going to warm up. We have uncertainty about how much and how fast. But the risk is that it could be substantial enough that it could cause great damage to human civilization, maybe even bring our civilization down, throw us back into dark ages because of the collateral effects that it would have on our ability to grow enough food for everyone to uh, make people able to live in their homes rather than causing mass migrations and, and so on. Some people talk about saving the earth, but the reality is that the planet's going to be here like Venus is really hot, but it's there. So <laughs> it's really about saving ourselves at this point. It's really about saving ourselves and in particular about saving our civilization. Uh, it's highly unlikely we would drive ourselves to extinction, but we could certainly, just like has happened to human civilizations in the past, the fall of Greece, the fall of Rome, uh, we could certainly cause our civilization to collapse. 
And so with you being an educator on this, what's been your greatest personal struggle as you're trying to get this message out there? Well, I think the biggest struggle is getting people to hear it and to listen because there is so much misinformation that gets out there. And and perhaps the biggest single piece of misinformation is that this is a very difficult, complex subject to understand when, in fact, the basic science is really very simple and clear that anyone can see. Mm. Can you break that down for us a little bit? So like, I agree with you that most people see it as a really complex and large scale topic. That's why a lot of people don't like talking about it. But what is the simplicity that this can all boil down to? So I like to call it global warming one, two, three. So number one is we know from, for example, Venus, that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases make planets warmer than they would be otherwise. Number two, we know that through the burning of fossil fuels and other activity, we're adding more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to our atmosphere. So if you take number one, that we know greenhouse gases make planets warmer, and number two, that we're adding more of them, number three follows obviously, and that is that what we are doing will cause the earth to warm up. There's just no question about that. Again, the only question is how fast and how severe the consequences will be. And once you get it to that simple point, you realize that all the debates you hear in the media and politics and everything else are debates about details. What we know is that there is a risk. And the question is, how much risk are we willing to take? The details aren't, they don't really help at this point. We just have to agree on the basics. That's right. We realize that we have a risk and we know how to deal with risks. And that is you try to alleviate them. You don't just keep going as if they're not there. So with you understanding so clearly uh, what's at stake, again, it's simple. So we really all should understand this. Does our current slow rate of progress compared to what we need to do, does that ever make you feel discouraged or hopeless at all? Well, it's certainly discouraging that we haven't made more rapid progress than we have because already we're seeing many severe consequences from this in terms of extreme weather events and and other damaging effects around the world, which we could have prevented if we would have started acting on this earlier. I I certainly wouldn't say it makes me uh, discouraged or hopeless because there's plenty of hope still out there. We just have to do what we know needs to be done. And as a species in general, we're pretty good about that. When we realize there's a problem, we know how to go about solving it. We just have to actually do that. Well, I feel like part of the issue there is we're very attuned to issues that are more direct. So if there's like a natural disaster or uh, I don't know if there's like a more immediate threat, we're likely to take action on that right away. Whereas climate change feels more chronic, like a chronic illness, we kind of have to do things maybe on a daily basis, or it's more stretched out. So it's harder to drive action. Correct. And that's certainly been one of the difficulties in addressing it. But again, we have a history of being able to address things like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most direct example is the uh, Montreal Protocol that dealt with the CFCs that were clearly damaging the ozone layer. That was, again, something that didn't feel so super immediate, but we still came together and worked on that. And if you look to other arenas, for example, in the uh, the political arena, the global struggle, the Cold War, we did deal with threats from other nations that weren't necessarily immediate and required long-term strategies. We did that. 
let's say that you were in charge of directing the sustainability movement. What would you focus on that can help us have the biggest positive difference for us to act on climate change right now? Well, you know, there's certainly lots of opinions about that. My own personal opinion is uh, I think the thing that would solve this problem is a carbon tax. And I think that the way you get that put in place that's acceptable to people of all political persuasions is to do what the citizens climate lobby calls their tax and dividend plan, where you collect the carbon tax and all the revenue from it is distributed back out to uh, the public in monthly dividend checks. So it's not affecting the government's baseline revenue that takes the political issue out of it where you have liberals who like spending more money, conservatives who don't. This way, it separates that. All you're doing is returning the money back to the public, and we can have the debate about what government funding should be over different topics. For this, the carbon tax, you put it in place, that makes the price of fossil fuels reflect the reality of the damage that they do and what they really cost us. And as soon as you do that, you find that all other fuel sources, renewables, nuclear, anything that you mentioned that doesn't involve fossil fuels and, and carbon release becomes cost competitive with it. And I think with a carbon tax, we would very quickly find new technologies, new innovations that would push us away from the use of fossil fuels any further. I think we could make a very rapid transition away from fossil fuels if we had a substantive carbon tax. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of our environmental issues across the board are the result of things not reflecting their true costs. So Correct. in this case, it's that it doesn't reflect the true, the environmental and social costs of fossil fuels. Exactly. And one of the side benefits you get from that is number one, because as you say, it's not reflecting the true cost. The reality is when you look at the true cost, other sources are actually cheaper. So the end result would be we'd end up having as much or more energy for less money, which means it strengthens our overall economy. And at the same time, it means we no longer are using things that are causing air and water pollution and lots of other health problems for people around the world. Yeah. So how do we even get to this point where things aren't reflecting their true costs? Well, you know, I, there's a lot of situations where things won't reflect their true costs because if you just dump them, right, and you don't pay for the disposal costs of all the emissions that are coming out of this, which is basically what causes the air and water pollution and the global warming, is that we just let people dump the emissions into the atmosphere. That's a problem in the market that economists understand quite well. They call those externalities, things that are not factored into the initial cost. And it's been well known among economists for a long time that the way you deal with those kinds of things is through targeted taxes like a carbon tax would be. And you'll find both conservative and liberal economists agree on this, that a carbon tax is the way to correct what's basically a flaw in the free market in this case. We don't have a true free market because we're not charging for those real costs. Mm. So given that people agree on this, what's the hurdle here now? Uh, basically, the hurdle is politicians. If we can get the politicians to say, yeah, that's something we can do, carbon tax, tax and dividends, so it doesn't change the net revenue for the government, it would be done. It's something we could do quite quickly and easily in principle. We just need enough votes in Congress to, uh, to pass it and the signature of the president. Yeah. So for us, it's about voting and getting politically active. It's absolutely about voting. 
and voting for people who will support action on this issue and in particular a carbon tax. And I should point out again, there are plenty of Republicans who support a carbon tax, perhaps not a majority of them, but there are Republican candidates who support this. So it's not strictly one way or the other. And what are usually the counter arguments to this? Oh, what are the that's a good question. You know, <laughs> I, I, I haven't really heard any good counter arguments to it. The main counter argument is just to close your ears and, and uh, pretend it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, I think when you talk to people who understand the reality of this, it comes up as the best solution. In fact, I mentioned the Citizens Climate Lobby, which you're probably familiar with that's been pushing this idea for a long time. But there was a big op-ed and report put out by a bunch of former Republican administration officials led by George Shultz that called this the conservative answer to climate change, which is the same tax and dividend program uh, promoted by the Citizens Climate Lobby. At the very end, I really want to touch on what you think we can do as individuals to support this systemic change. But for now, I want to touch a little bit on how you teach climate change to people. So you speak in front of a wide variety of audiences from preschool students to graduate students to uh, professionals within this field. How does your approach or focus change when you're speaking to these different groups of people? The main difference between talking with uh, younger kids, talking with a general public audience, or talking with a group of scientists is just the level of understanding that I can expect them to have coming into it and the vocabulary that I can use and, and so on. You know, when I talk to scientists, I can assume they know all the basic science and just explain why I think this is a good way to describe the issue and get other people to understand it and then answer questions about more detailed scientific concepts. For the general public or for kids, I want to focus on getting them to understand that this basic science is clear and simple, that we have solutions to this if we want to put them in, that they're not political solutions, that they're ones that people of all political persuasions can agree on, and that we can do this. And for kids in particular, I want to make sure you have to be very careful. You don't want them to be scared by this issue. You want them to see this issue as, wow, I'm so lucky to be growing up at a time when I will get to be part of the solution to this problem and live in the incredible world we're going to build as a result of that solution. And how do you make them feel this way? How do you help them to feel empowered in this situation? I try to really explain what they can personally do. You know, I have my children's book, The Wizard Who Saved the World, which in that book, the boy, as he learns about global warming, at first he thinks he needs to be a magical wizard to solve something like that. But then he starts to realize all the different careers that he could engage in that would in some way contribute to solving this problem. So at the end of the story, he realizes, hey, I've actually become a wizard after all, just not through magic, through my ability to affect change in the world. And I'm also curious, when you teach this to preschoolers, how do their reactions differ compared to when you speak to adults about this? Uh, well, so I do write lots of children. I have six children's books. Some of them are about my dog traveling into space. <laughs> and so with preschoolers and young, younger elementary, I do, don't get into this particular issue. I think they're a little too young for that. I talk to them about space and space travel, because like I said at the beginning, for me, those two things are related. As you look at 
the earth from space, you start to realize kind of intuitively how important it is to take care of the planet. So for the younger kids, I just focus on that more general idea that we live on this incredible planet and we need to take good care of it. By fourth or fifth grade, then I can start to talk to them about this issue in particular, which is where my book, The Wizard Who Saved the World, is kind of aimed. So at this point, what do you think we need in order to speak more intelligently about the signs of climate change to the general public that can actually engage people and not push people away? I think the key is to stay focused on that one, two, three science, the really basic idea that we know that the addition of greenhouse gases from the burning of fossil fuels and other human activity is causing this warming that we are experiencing. And then once we know that, we don't need to go into any other details. We just need to talk about what are we going to do about it to prevent the worst possible outcomes. I was going to say, we definitely do have people who just don't believe climate change is induced by human activity. And my question is, does it matter if people believe it or not, so long as we can agree on those one, two, three things you mentioned that is pretty like simple science? And also, if we can agree on the solutions, does it matter what people ultimately believe? You know, probably not. Um, if uh, There's a wonderful cartoon by a cartoonist named Joel Pett, which I actually have in my Global Warming Primer book, where he has the uh, person talking in the front of the room about all the great benefits, less pollution, get it stopping the climate change, strengthening our economy because we're getting the same energy for cheaper. And you have a person in the back of the audience who stands up and says, but what if it's all a great big hoax and we make a better world for nothing? And I think that really captures the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe. This, these solutions to this problem are good for us in every way. It's a win-win in every possible way. I think we'll see action on it because of that once people realize that. Right. A lot of the actions needed to help address this issue of climate change also have like public health benefits, individual health benefits, uh, likely benefits for economical growth even. And that's important to a lot of big corporations and governments. Right. And just to give another simple example, if you consider developing nations where people would like to have more energy, if they want, if they put in traditional energy sources, they need to build this huge power grid and infrastructure to make it work. If they put in solar panels and uh, wind farms, those are very localized. And so they can actually get energy cleaner and cheaper than it would be to get it in more traditional ways. And going back on the believing or not believing, do you feel like that's at this point just a distraction? Because I feel like a lot of people get caught up with that argument. Like, is it real? Is it not real? When we can all just skip that part and just start taking action, right? I do think that is generally a distraction. And but also, you know, the good news is when you look at polls, I don't know if this is really should be called good news. But but people, the vast majority of the public recognize that this is real at this point, because it's really becoming very difficult to miss when you look at what's going on with the climate around us and the weather events and these extreme hurricanes and the hotter days in the summer, the increase in major storms and downpours and floods and droughts and even winter blizzards, which people don't realize that's an expected consequence of global warming because there's more energy in the atmosphere and energy drives storms of all types, including blizzards. So all these events, people are seeing them. They're recognizing, you know, the climate really is changing. So we see in polls, 85, even approaching 90 percent of the public accepts this is real today. So do you think the bigger challenge is 
getting people to want to engage in this conversation because like you mentioned, the complexity of it or the perceived complexity of it might make people not want to engage. I think that's definitely part of it. And the other part of it is the perceived political aspects of it. You know, somehow this issue has become, uh, at least in some people's minds, tied to to liberals or Democrats. And one of the things I like to point out in my talks is that the first major global leader to speak out on this issue was actually Margaret Thatcher, founder of modern conservatism, who gave a speech to the United Nations in 1989 about the threat of global warming, which she said was a certainty because she understood that one, two, three science. And so when you point that out to people, they're they're very surprised to realize that conservatives were the ones who were pushing this issue first. So maybe we have to highlight that even more. <laughs> I think that helps because it overcomes this misinformation about it being a political issue. So the IPCC report came out recently saying that we have 12 years to limit climate change catastrophe. And I know a lot of people are freaking out a little bit about this. So we need big things done fast. And you mentioned the carbon tax is something that can help uh, inspire systemic change across the board without necessarily convincing individual people to do things. So in addition to this, is there anything else you think we really need to be able to prevent such a catastrophe in the next 12 years? Well, the, the 12 years is is for limiting the global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius versus if we wait longer, it goes up more. So it's not like it's a magic point that suddenly it's it's do or die. It's just a good <laughs> reference point to have that telling us, yes, we do need to take action pretty quickly. I'd like to see the action happen much faster than 12 years. And so in addition to the carbon tax, there's also what you do as an individual, which is you on your own, every individual human being can take steps to try to limit what their contribution to this problem is. So live more sustainably. Um, and and if, if you don't mind, I'll just give you one more really cool insight that I got from a from when I was doing this talk at a retirement home one yeah. time. The question came up about how quickly we could solve this problem. And most people in the audience, and I tended to agree, said, you know, a couple of decades, we could probably do it. And this 95-year-old or so man in the front said, no, three to five years at most. And I said, how do you come up with something so short? And he said, because I lived through World War II. And when the United States had to, we completely transformed the entire economy of this country in just a couple of years in order to win World War II. He said, it's just a matter of how much we care. If we care enough and we do what we need to do, we could change this in just a couple of years. And I feel like at this point, obviously, more and more people care and are really prioritizing this as a top issue. What can we do to translate this care into political action? Well, again, vote. That is the number one thing. And only vote for candidates who will take action on this. And again, there are both Republicans and Democrats who have said they will do that, but make sure it's part of their platform before you vote for them. Do you have any resources on uh, how we can look up to see if these candidates have this as a top priority? Oh, that's a good question. I don't off the top of my head know, but I would suspect that the citizens climate lobby might have some information on the people, the different congressional uh, candidates positions. And you can also, of course, go to the individual candidates websites for your district, for example, and 
climate change. If they say nothing, that's probably not a good sign. If they say they support action, but they haven't said that in particular, go go check with them. Send an email to them and ask them what's their position on that. And once we have a carbon tax in place, how long do you think it'll take for us to be able to address climate change? Do you think it'll still take a few decades or... That's a really good question. I, I personally think it would happen pretty quickly because I think what we would see is that as soon as you had that, it would spur so much innovation that we are, we know that already renewables, for example, are becoming cost competitive with fossil fuels. If we had that carbon tax, it would spur so much additional innovation into renewable technologies and other technologies that I think very quickly we'd find, wow, We've made these other technologies so much cheaper than fossil fuels that we would move away from fossil fuels quite quickly. So initially, it might be really hard to get a carbon tax in place. But once it's in place, this can be like huge positive change across the board, across all industries. That's what I think would happen. Um, of course, you have to do the carbon tax right. You have to have it be large enough to to make a real impact. And that probably means you have to have it increase slowly and gradually over a few years because you don't want to hit the economy with a huge tax all at once. But again, the Citizens Climate Lobby, the George Schultz uh, group, others have looked at this and they've come up with numbers that they think would be economically viable to phase this in and make it work. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Um, what's next for you that we can look forward to and support? And where can we go to stay updated with your work online? Uh, thank you. Well, you can go to uh, my website, jeffreybennett.com, and also to uh, bigkidscience.com, which is my book website. And uh, I, I'm going about my global warming tour, continuing to go to various cities. If somebody wants me to come speak in their city, just send an email off to me. Um, if you can get me a big enough audience, I'll come do that at, at my own expense because I want to get this message out to people. And as far as what you can look for me in the future, I'm hoping to uh, continue writing new books. I'm trying to work on some programs for middle school kids right now. And of course, my, my main uh, line of work is my college textbooks, and I'm continuing to uh, update those and make sure that they're teaching students what they need to know about this issue and, and other topics in science and math. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to give you a discount code in case you're interested in our 2019 Green Dreamer planners. They feature our major Earth Awareness Days, 101 self-care reminders, gratitude lists, weekly simple suggested actions to take and cross off, minimalist weekly and monthly pages, extra bullet journal pages, and more. And again, each planner contributes to the planting of 50 trees through international nonprofit Eden Reforestation Projects. If this sounds like it'd be helpful to you and you want to support Reforestation and Green Dreamer podcast, just head to greendreamer.com slash planners and use the discount code greendreamer for 10% off. Again, that's greendreamer.com slash planners and discount code greendreamer. For now, on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? For me personally, the, the most uplifting things are the scientific developments that are going on. So I love following, for example, Scientific American, the New York Times, Science Times every week. And in terms of a social media account, uh, personally, I'm a huge fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson. So follow him on Twitter. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? 
I look at the young people because when I talk to kids, they understand that this is real and they also understand the opportunity that they have to be a part of the solution and live in a really amazing world where we not only solve global warming, but we're sending people off to live on the moon and Mars and so on. And that's very inspirational. And when you see how excited kids get about these things, it it makes me optimistic that we really are going to solve this. Uh, what's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly? I love to swim personally, so I try to do that almost every day. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Uh, we've been trying to make sure that our house is uh, fully renewable in its energy sources, and we recently bought an electric car, so doing the best we can to reduce our own carbon footprint. Uh, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I think it's the fact that we've done things like this before that seem very hard, but once we do them, we realize, wow, we should have done that even sooner because of all the benefits we get from it. So, so I'm optimistic we will turn this one around. Um, and what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Keep dreaming because we will make those dreams come true as long as we all work together and push together, make it nonpartisan, nonpolitical, focus on the science and the real threat and the real solutions. Keep dreaming, make it nonpartisan, and focus on the science, the real threats, and our real solutions. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable takeaways from this interview and the full show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 110 for episode 110. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page, and you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane, as well as on our new account at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.